All right, so let's do this. Go to Romans chapter 7. And um, uh, we, we're going to start in verse 7 to verse 12. We started Romans 7 last week. We've been looking for the last couple of months at Paul's letter to this church in Rome. He didn't know them, uh, but they knew who he was. He had wanted to go to Rome for a long time. It was going to work out in his schedule, um, as it turns out. And, but as it all said and done, he ends up going to Rome in an entirely different way than he thought he was going to. Um, but here in, in chapter 7, we have a very unique um, section in this letter and in Paul's writings. Because what we have here is Paul's autobiography, if you will. Paul is going to be giving us a glimpse of his life before Christ. So five times in Paul's letters does he give us a picture of his life before Christ. You find out in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, listen, I was, the, I was the least of the apostles, unworthy to be an apostle because I was a persecutor of the church. And he goes on to talk about how God's grace came to him. And then in 1 Timothy, he tells Timothy, he says, listen, I formerly, I, you know, I was a blasphemer and a persecutor and an insolent opponent but I received mercy. And he goes on to say that he received mercy so that Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience. So that he, he said, so, so as Jesus displays his patience to me, the one who persecuted him, that that might be an example of his mercy to others. So nobody could ever say, oh, well, you don't know the things I've done. Paul says, no, I was the worst. In Philippians chapter 3, he gives us a glimpse of his life before Christ. And he says, you know, if anybody had a reason to brag about anything, I did. He says, as it comes to, to, to living in a way that you ought to live, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. Most people don't even know their tribes. But I'm pure. A Hebrew of Hebrews and as to the law, a Pharisee. And as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. And as to righteousness under the law, blameless. That's what he says about himself. In Galatians, he says, you've heard of my former life. How I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. But I have come to be the recipient of grace. Well, the fifth of the autobiographies, the, the fifth of Paul's telling about his life before Christ is here in Romans 7. And it may be the most intimate and the most theological of all of them. So, so I'm going to start reading, beginning verse 7 of Romans 7. I'm going to read to verse 12, and then we'll talk about it. He says this, answering the, the critics that he knows are there. What shall we say then, that the law is sin? <laughs> By no means. Y yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, 
sin lies dead. I was, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, do what only you can do this morning in your word. And I pray you'd, you'd cause us to, to love your word. And Father, we pray that your word would have its way with us and draw us to your son, Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. As you hear these words, what, what, what Paul's going to do is he... He begins in verse 7 and then in verse 12, which is kind of the bookend, he, he's answering the question um, that would have been on the minds of the readers. And the question is, Paul, since, since you've said all these things about the law up to this point, that in, in, in chapter 3 you said the law increases the consciousness of sin. In chapter 4, you told us that the law brings wrath. In chapter 5, you said the law makes sin evident and, and, and then it makes it abundant. You told us in chapter 6 that we're not under the law anymore because we're under grace. And at the beginning of chapter 7, you used this illustration, Paul, that said, listen, the reason that we haven't been able to be wed to God is because we've been in a relationship, we've been wed, we've been under the law of marriage with sin and death. The law has kept us there. And in fact, Paul, it sounds like you're saying the biggest problems we have in, in, on top of sin and on top of death is that you've included the law in this. That it's ruled over us like a, like a lord or like a master or a slave owner. And now you declare we are free from the law. Paul, are you saying that the law is bad? Are you saying that the law is is sin? So what Paul says here in verse 7 of chapter 7, and you have an exclamation point by it. By no means. It's the, it's the most, um, it's the strongest way to say absolutely not. That's not what I'm saying. And his conclusion is that the law is, is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And the psalmist says it, it's, it's sweet like honey. And he longs for it. And so, so the law is not sin. But what he's going to say is the law does have a relationship with sin. Sin has made itself an ally of the law, if you will. But look at what it says again there in, in verse 7. He says, well, what then shall we say? Is the law, you know, sin by no means. Um, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. 
That word known there, it, it means to arrive at a knowledge, to come to an understanding. I have come to understand the real and true power of sin. I have come to understand through the law the sin that resides in me. I, I formerly was unaware of the depth of the problem of the sin that I had, but the law comes and brings the diseased, um, uh, the disease of sin to the surface to, to manifest itself so that I cannot ignore it anymore. And so what he does is he says, here's what I would not have known without the law. I wouldn't have known what it was to covet if the law hadn't said to me, do not covet. Now, let me talk about this for a second. Do not covet is the 10th commandment. And if you took all of God's laws, you could say, listen, it really, it, it's summed up as Jesus sums it up in the gospel when asked, well, what's the greatest commandment? He said, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. And the second is like the first, love your neighbor as yourself. And so the law of God is summed up in this entire statement of love God and love others. In fact, later you'll see that Paul will say, listen, we fulfill the law of God as we love one another. Well, God then hands down, this is, you know, love God, love others. He hands it down formally at Sinai to the Israelites in the form of the Ten Commandments. Now, this is God not bringing anything new into the story. What he's doing is he's revealing what has been written on their hearts. Now, he makes plain. This is a description of, it points you to, it reminds you, it informs you of my holiness. And if you take those two tablets, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. It sums up the two tablets of the commandments. And you take and you shatter those things and you begin to sprinkle it throughout the Old Testament, you come up with what the rabbis had noticed, and that's 613 commands. And Paul, as a rabbi in training, who would have excelled at, at um, Tarsus and then gone to Jerusalem to study under the great famous rabbi uh, Gamaliel. He, he goes there. Now he would have known all of those things. It's very likely Paul would have had the entire Old Testament memorized in the Hebrew without the points. And so not only did he know the law, he knew the Ten Commandments and he knew the 613. And here's what he would have said. Do not steal do not murder. Honor your father and your mother. He would have gone down the line like the rich young ruler in Matthew chapter 10 and said, I've, I've kept all of those things. I have a life that demonstrates it. I've done more good than I have bad. In fact, to tell for Paul here the telling, I, I've actually, I've been the very best person I've ever known. And I don't think he's exaggerating. He said, when it came to the righteousness of the law, you know what? I was blameless. No one could have brought a charge against me. But here's the problem. Coveting. Do not covet. It is not something that 
um, gives way to external expression. I mean, it's easy to say, well, have you, have you stolen anything? I mean, you examine everything, see everything I have, I haven't stolen. I mean, there's a lot of ways that you can examine a person's life with relation to the law. Coveting is one of those things that lies underneath. What Paul means, he said, listen, I would not have known, I would not have come to the experiential knowledge. I, I would not have known sin's true colors. I didn't understand the real and true power of sin that lies in me. If it had said, do not covet, covet is a great desire, it's this longing, it's a craving for something. It's translated in the ESV in the New Testament as lusts or passions or desires. What is coveting? Well, it's simple. You get jealous or covetousness or of, of somebody when you get near them and they have more of the idol that you want than you do. You get near someone and they have more of the idol that you want than you do. That's coveting. It's when you get near someone and you go, what? They have the marriage I want. My marriage isn't this good. That's what I want. If I just had that marriage, my life would be okay. Or their kids, you know, their kids. If my kids were just like that. Or the house they live in, or the car they drive, or the money they have, or the power, or the influence, or the invitations, or the followers, or whatever. They have more of the idol that you want than you do. And you know what it reveals? You've covetous heart. Paul says, I didn't know that. I didn't even realize the depth of the sin in me. Now, we don't know what his was. Maybe it was, listen, I had to be the very best of the very best. And I didn't realize when I got to Jerusalem and there were all these students there that, man, I was having to work hard and I wasn't getting the propers that I deserved. And, and I, we don't know what it was. But whatever it was, it was, it was when he came to understand, do not covet, and he had to examine his heart, and there was nowhere left to hide, is the way that he sees it. You know, it's a lot like the difference between a selfie and a candid picture. You know what I'm talking about? I can take a selfie all day long and delete the ones I don't like, but find myself in just the right light at just the right angle that I can somehow promote to myself continually, oh yeah, this is how I look. When I see a candid shot of myself, you know, like a profile on a picture, and I'm like, oh my, oh my gosh. <laughs> I didn't, really? Nobody told me. <laughs> That's what the law does. And when he talks about covetousness, it's the, it's the candid shot that he's confronted with. It's not the image he's been trying to, you know, listen, 
You, we're all Pharisees to some degree. We're all putting on. We, we all want to um, uh, portray the image that, that we're winning. But when our heart gets exposed and unfolded, we're left with the reality that we actually are more sinful than we thought that we were. It brings to light, he's saying, this inward depravity that I have. And then what it does is it awakens a longing to be delivered. It prepares you for grace. Story, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, you know, by Robert Louis Stevenson. And the, the story, you know, goes, so, so Dr. Jekyll, you know, he creates his potion and takes the potion, and he becomes Mr. Hyde, and yet it brings out all the, the worst in him when he takes that potion. And so he comes to the place in his life, you know, and he's like, listen, no more potion. I'm not taking it anymore. You know, I'm never taking it again. Um, not only that, I'm going to live such a good life. I'm going to make amends. Uh, you know, I'm going to be more generous, more kind, more so than anybody ever has been. Through an act of my will, I am going to clean up my act and squeeze out everything that is left, every remnant of Mr. Hyde so that he never shows up again. I'm never taking the potion. Well, he actually does a good job of it until he comes to this moment and it's recorded like this. I resolved in my future conduct to redeem the past. And my resolve was fruitful you know how earnestly in the last few months of this year I labored to relieve suffering. You know how I lived. You know how much was done for other people. But on one fine day, a clear January day, I was sitting in the sun in Regent's Park and I reflected and smiled and comparing myself with other men, comparing my active goodwill with the lazy cruelty of their neglect of the fellow man, and at the very moment of that vainglorious thought, a qualm came over me, a horrid nausea and dreadful shuddering. I looked down and I was once more Edward Hyde, but this time without the potion. That's what the law does. It reveals you for who you are. In some ways, you can think about the law like this. Paul's going to argue, look, it's holy, and it's, the commandment is holy and righteous and good. In some ways, think about it as it's the script that was written for you. You created in the image of God. It was the, it was the script that defined the part of, the, of, the, of, of what you were created to live. But here's the problem. While it is the script, the story's broken. And you, you as a character in the you're broken. And the script written for you, you, you can't play that part anymore. You are broken. That's what Paul's saying. And he said, I didn't know that I was broken. I was living it out. I was going through the lines. I was 
playing the part that I thought God wrote for me, which in fact he did, is created in the image of God. What Paul didn't account for was that he was so broken, so sinful, had so much lying beneath in his heart. The sin, the, the law comes and it exposes that in him. But instead of making him righteous, the law can show him righteousness, but it has no power to make him righteous. What it did is it allies itself. It, sin comes and allies and says, oh yeah? And it revealed he was more sinful than he had imagined. But sin, he says in verse 8, it provokes his sin. But sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. The law of God's not given so that God can discover how sinful we are. The law of God is given to, to bring light to the sin that is in us. The law reveals about us that we are not like God. That the image that we were created in has been stained by sin beyond our ability or our desire to wash clean. And so in 9 and through 11, he tells us about how the law condemns sin. He says, I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and, and I died. Paul's going to talk about it in verse 19. It's how he came to the end of himself and thus then came to Christ. Paul's saying, listen, when I looked at my life, I was a Pharisee and you know, I was a pretty good person. You know, I'm in the running. I'm, 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 I'm spiritually alive. I'm doing pretty good. I have a real chance here. Because he's looking on the outside and comparing himself to those on the outside. And as long as you talk about the law in terms of external behavior, you're able to say, yeah, you know what? I'm doing okay here. But the problem is the law comes particularly like in the 10th commandment of not coveting. And it's revealed about you the motives and the intentions of your heart. And it brings that to the surface. In verse 10, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. See, if you read through the Old Testament, it, it's fairly easy to conclude that, listen, if, if you live by the law, if you live by the law, you live by the law, it'll bring you life. Deuteronomy 28 spells out all the blessings. If you live by the law, it'll bring you life. Here is the problem. The power of sin makes it impossible for any human being to fulfill the law and so attain to the promise. Here's the promise. You live by the law, you have life, but you have to live by the law perfectly. Paul answers the question in Galatians, why the law? In Galatians 3.19, it's what he says, why the law? And he argues that it was added because of the transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. The ultimate intention that the law serves is positive and that will bring you to a place of bondage under your sin so that you look to God and the promise of his Messiah for life. 
The law promises life, but it can't give you life. It shows you righteousness, but it can't empower you for righteousness. It bids you to come change, but provides no avenue for which you can change. It shows you who God is, but it can't get you to God. The law is meant to bring you to a place of absolute desperate. Listen, the law brings you to the end of yourself. I think a lot of times we think about Christianity. That listen, I, I do good and I keep going and I'm on the road to obedience and I keep moving up and up and up and somewhere along this road of me getting better, I get to a place of salvation. That salvation includes my work of getting myself better and yet it is, salvation is not an ascension. It's actually a descension. It's bringing you to the absolute lowest place. The law doesn't bring you up to God. It brings you down to Christ so that you in your helplessness and hopelessness cry out for a Savior. That's what the law does. I was in Abilene this last week for Thanksgiving. And when I'm there, I feel obligated to listen to country music. And I realized it had been a while since I'd listened to country music. And so I turned it to, you know, one, uh, uh, what's the station? Um, Keen, right, 105. One, yeah, who, somebody else? Yeah, good Abilene. All right, 105.1, Keen Radio, K-E-A-N Radio. Yeah, I grew up listening to it, you know. Gosh, Okay. This isn't a comment on country music necessarily, but there's a song that's on the radio. So I'm listening to it. I'm like, well, that's a catchy little tune. Straight from hell. (laughs) But it's catchy. I believe most people are good. This is what the song's saying. Mamas ought to qualify for sainthood. Well, sure they ought to. Friday nights look better under neon and stadium lights. I believe... You love who you love and nothing should be ashamed. I believe the world ain't half bad as it looks. I believe most people are good. I believe them streets of gold are worth the work. The law comes to purge you of that thinking. That the streets of gold, whatever whatever your picture of heaven is, that needs to be corrected by Revelation 21 and 22. You don't get there because of your work. In fact, when you come to the end of yourself and realize, you know, there's nothing I can do. There's no amount of work I can do. I need a Savior. Until you come to terms with what lies in here, you can't yet receive the grace of God. You've got to be shattered at the foot of Sinai like Israel was in Exodus chapter 19 so that you can be saved the foot of the cross on Golgotha. But you must be shattered. And you must know the weight of the righteousness of God that reveals 
your sin. You got to know that until you, you know, then, then you're ready. Then you know, then you know, oh, oh, grace. So that's why Paul can conclude in verse 12. So the law is holy. And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The law can't be charged with any wrong. It's from God. It's holy. It's goodness owes to the person of God. And what the law produces in a person, bringing what's hidden into the light, bringing sin forward, bringing your helplessness to the surface, see, the law is good. Augustine says God commands what we cannot do that we may know what we ought to seek from him. The law also should remind us as believers that returning to the law, you know, whether the Mosaic law or a list of rules as a source of spiritual vigor or growth, see this, that's not where you go, Paul's going to argue. You're not under the law. You're under grace. And the problem with thinking that way is not a high view of the law, it is a low view of the law. Theologian of the 20th century, J. Gresham Machen said this, he says, a low view of the law always produces legalism. A high view of the law makes a person a seeker after grace. The reason this seems so counterintuitive is because most people think that those who uh, talk a lot about grace have a low view of God's law. Others think that those with a high view of the law are legalists. But a point in fact is that it is a low view of law that produces legalism because a low view of law causes us to conclude that we can do it that the bar's low enough for us to jump over. A low view of the law makes us think that the standards are attainable, that the goals are reachable, that the demands are doable. This means that contrary to what some Christians would have you believe, the biggest problem facing the church today is not cheap grace, but cheap law. The idea that God accepts anything less than the perfect righteousness of Jesus. Did you know that the law or your list, your goodness, gains you no favor with God? It doesn't. What gains you favor with God is your faith in his son, Jesus. And that it is not your righteousness that gets counted, but it is his righteousness that gets counted. It is his goodness. It is his perfection. And that so you never are counting on your ability to meet the standard that God has decreed. You are counting on Jesus' ability to have done that, and he did and declared it is finished and then died your death, laid in a grave for three days and rose to new life so that you can be saved. You cannot save your 
self. You cannot survive your own salvation. Your trust in God's provision of His Son, that He died for your sin, and that He accomplished all the perfection that you ever need. And your ability to live up to the standard has already been declared finished because who Jesus is counts for you. Now, should we do the law? Absolutely, we should do the law. But we do not rely on observing the law. It gains us nothing in the standing of God. How'd you come in here this morning? Did you come in here thinking, you know what? I've really blown it. And I gotta be better. And I gotta do better. And man, God's, he's probably just about done with me. Or you know what? I, I'm taking a survey and of all these things, man, I gotta make up for all this. I gotta get my act right. Paul says, you're not under the law. You're under grace. John will say, here's how you make right. If you say you're without sin, you're a liar. But if you come face to face with your sin, and John says, if you confess your sin, and you believe in the provision of God's Son to make you righteousness, He will cleanse you of all unrighteousness, he will wash you clean of your sin. It is not because of what you do to make amends that you are forgiven. It is in who you believe. Confession is not penance. Confession is faith. So where are you this morning? Are you, are you living a penance or has the law brought you to a place of faith that I can do no other than believe? It's from there Paul's going to tell us, listen, we absolutely now are empowered to live out the script that God has written, and that empowerment comes not from what we can do, but from what God's Spirit's going to do inside of us. That we begin to live and look like who we are in Christ. We are becoming who we already are. And there's great glory in that. There's great joy in that. But he wants us to know we do not get there in our own work, our own energy, and through the law. It's going to come through the power of the Spirit. And that's coming. That's coming in the next few weeks. I can't wait for you to hear it. Don't miss next week because it's Next week is Paul's confession of the great struggle that this Christian life can be. So read ahead, Romans chapter 7, if you would pray with me. Father, pray that you would take this word.